morning. I'd like to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of Jude. This letter of Jude was written nearly 2,000 years ago. But I think it's still every bit as relevant to us today because we live in a midst of false teachers who propagate all kinds of counterfeit Christian ideologies, philosophies, every ism and schism imaginable. I mean, you can find someone teaching just about anything you can imagine, the things you can't imagine, all right? Well, Jude has warned the church about apostates who have crept into the church unnoticed. He reminds them of Yahweh's past judgment on apostates. He talks about the characteristics of these apostates, and he reminds them of Yahweh's future to them coming judgment on these apostates. Then in verse 17, he exhorts the believers to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles about the end-time mockers. These ungodly men were in the church now, just as the apostles warned that they would be. Now, we ended our study last time with verse 19. It says, these are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirits. Apostates always cause division in the church because there will always be division between truth and error. And they're teaching error, so hopefully there's going to be a conflict there. Now, the word worldly-minded here, we said, is from the Greek word sukakos, and it means soulish or natural. It's the opposite of spiritual. These apostates are natural men. And that's why I said they are devoid of the Spirit. And devoid of the Spirit is basically explaining to us what worldly-minded means. Sukakos is only used five times in the New Testament. Paul uses it three times in 1 Corinthians. We looked at 1 Corinthians 2.14 last time. Uh, look at how Paul uses it in chapter 15 to compare the natural to the spiritual. He said, It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. So you can see that he's making that comparison here. Natural in both places here, sukakos. He compares that to pneumatikos, that of the spirit. In verse 45 and 46, he says, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So Paul uses these words that Jude uses. He uses the same words to contrast the two bodies of Adam and Christ. He uses these words to speak of the two corporate bodies, one of death and one of life. There is a natural body of Adam. There is a spiritual body of Christ. And life is in that spiritual body. So Jude is telling us that these apostates had no spiritual life in them. They were simply natural men. They were ungodly. They had no spirit in them whatsoever. They were not spiritual. Then in verses 20-23, through we have Jude's response to the problem of false teachers in the church. Jude instructs the beloved, that is believers, on how to survive in a time of apostasy. How to stand against the apostasy. He says in verse 20, But you, beloved... Now, notice in verse 19, he said, these are the ones. Now, he's making a contrast here, a distinction between the readers and the apostates who had crept into the local body. He said, these are the ones but you, you beloved. He's no longer speaking about them. He's addressing the church. He's telling believers how to overcome this apostasy. Now, but you, beloved, is the same Greek construction that we found in verse 17. The Greek word is agapetos. It means beloved or dearly beloved. 
This refers to all believers in Yeshua. Now, I said last week that the term beloved is the Greek word agapetos. It's used 60 times in the New Testament. The first nine times by Yahweh to Christ, His beloved Son. And we see that in Mark 9, verse 7. It says, Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now, the other 51 uses are only of believers. Now, commenting on this phrase, This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. Michael Heiser, in his new book, The Unseen Realm, by the way, it's just an excellent book. Heiser does a great job, very readable, very understandable, and a lot of information there. Michael Heiser writes this, We tend to think of this declaration as a sentimental one, or perhaps some verbal token of affection. He's talking about beloved. It is far more than that. When God refers to Jesus as His beloved, He is affirming the kingship of Jesus his legitimate status as the heir to David's throne. So the term beloved was used of Solomon, who was the original heir to David's throne. Heiser goes on to say on beloved, used of Solomon, the term amounts to the title that marks Solomon as a legitimate heir to the Davidic covenantal throne. The same message is telegraphed with respect to Jesus. God's own voice announces this is the king the legitimate heir to David's throne. So, beloved is used of Solomon, and it's used of Yeshua to designate them as legitimate heirs to the throne. And I'd like you to realize that by calling believers beloved, the Scripture is saying that we, believers, are legitimate heirs to David's throne. Revelation 3.21, Yeshua says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Yeshua is King and we are co-reigning with Him. We are beloved and we are heirs to the throne. Makes beloved a little more significant. I think we understand all the nuances that are connected with it. Alright, so Jude goes on to say, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. This is the first line of defense against apostasy, people. This is how we protect ourselves from the defection from the faith. We build ourselves up on the most holy faith. The word here for building is epoikad omeo, which is a compound from epi, meaning upon, oikos, meaning house, and domeo, meaning to build. So the compound word means to build upon, To build up. It refers to a spiritual structure. Literally this means to build build upon something that the foundation has already been laid on. It's adding to the foundation. Building up. It's referring to spiritual edification here. It's referring to spiritual growth. We are to build ourselves up. Now the verb for building is in the active voice. That means that we have to produce the action of building something up ourselves. It's telling us you build itself up. It's your responsibility. It's your job. You be building yourselves up. It's also in the present tense, which calls for continual building on the superstructure of our faith. So he's saying we are to always, we, we're responsible to do this. We are to always be building ourselves up on our most holy faith. While the apostates majored on tearing down the faith, Jude encourages the saints to be zealous about building up the faith. Now, Paul used the root verb here, Oikado meo 
in his letter to the Thessalonians, exhorting them to encourage one another. This is interesting. Basically the same root here. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So in Jude, he says, we're responsible to be building ourselves up. And in Thessalonians, he says, you ought to build each other up. And so basically, it takes a community, people. It's, it's a joint effort. We're working on that, but it's not done in isolation. We need each other. We need someone to come along and encourage and support and help with this. So it's a, it's a project that we all work on together with one another in the body of Christ. All right, back to Jude. He says, on your most holy faith, the word holy here is hagios. Hagios means to be separated unto God for his use. In the temple, utensils were separated, uh, spoons, all kinds of things were separated. All right, the verb form of this word means sanctified. The noun form means saint. And here we have the adjective that means holy. Now, the Greek word for faith here is pistis. And it not only means faith, but it also means that which is believed in. So this isn't necessarily the faith that we exercise when we believe. He's talking about what we read about in verse 3, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's the substance of what is believed. He's talking about the doctrines of the Word of God. We build ourselves up on the truth of Scripture is what he's saying. In other words, this phrase is telling us that the basis for all spiritual advancement and growth is the continual learning an application of Bible doctrine. The faith here is called the most holy faith because it comes from Yahweh and reveals Him to us. So Jude is telling the believers that they have a responsibility to be constantly building themselves up in the faith. Now this doesn't sit well with the couch potato mentality we have today in Christianity. We don't want to put too much effort into learning. We don't want to make, make it turn into work. But people, we're in a battle for truth And we must be doctrinally strong. That's the only way to battle in this thing, is to know the truth. We have to work to bring the church back to the priority of sound doctrine. Because the church lost that years ago, people. we got to come back to the priority of truth. You know, sadly today, the church is offering Bible studies that focus on, how does this passage make you feel? You know, I talked to someone that's in an emergent church. And they said, oh, it's just nice. The pastor reads a passage, and then we all talk about it. So I said, so you all pull your ignorance, basically. Okay? Because unless you've studied, you're just... Who cares what you think about that passage? Did you do some research on it? But that's what the church... How does this make you feel? Or, you know, what does this mean to you? You know, people say, what's this mean to you? I always say, who cares what it means to you? What does it mean? That's all that's important. And we don't know that until we get into the, you know, the history of it and get into the languages and the culture and start figuring out what it means. But the church doesn't care about that today. They all want to sit around and say, oh yeah, well to me, that passage means this. And it makes me feel so good when I read this. You know, and that's just ridiculous, people. That's where the church is at today. And this person told me, oh, my church is wonderful because I'm a full predator and they accept me. I said, they accept anybody at an emergent church. I don't care what you believe or don't believe. They accept you because they just open arms and tolerate anybody. That's not how it should be, people. If believers aren't strong in the faith, they're going to be drawn into apostasy. Do you realize that you can be saved by the grace of God, but by your actions and your words and your thoughts, you can move away from the faith? 
falling from the grace of God, falling from the truth of God. Notice what Paul wrote to the Galatians. He says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, people go crazy on this. What does it mean they fell from grace? Well, before we can understand that, we have to, you know, orient ourselves here. We have to ask a few questions. Would you agree with me that this book is addressed to Christians? I mean, that's what Paul says in one nine. He says, we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, talking to Galatians, he said, you received the gospel. He's to be accursed. So they had received the gospel. They were to keep standing in it, Paul told them. So Galatians 5.4 clearly says that some of the readers have fallen from grace and some of them were on the verge of doing so. That's indisputable. So it's possible for believers to fall from grace. The text clearly doesn't limit the falling from grace to just the Galatian Christians in the first century. Any Christian can fall from grace. The whole issue here is what does it mean? Does it mean the believers in question have fallen from their positional standing of grace? Well, if it does, then Paul contradicts himself because in other passages, he clearly states that's impossible. Now, since Scripture is God's Word and it cannot contradict itself, thus whatever Paul meant by falling from grace, he didn't mean falling from your position as a child of God, losing your salvation. Falling from grace means that a believer reverts to human effort to earn the favor of God. I'm going to work this. I'm going to do... And then you look up like, Lord, are you happy with me? Look what I'm doing. You know, you're earning your little brownie points. While our position in the grace of God is secure, our experience of His grace is not. He says, you've fallen from grace. And the word translated here, fallen, ekpipto, means to fall. It's used of withered flowers that fall to the ground. In this context, it's used figuratively and refers to the loss of one's grip on grace as a principle to live by. They're not living by grace. See, when we hear the word grace... I think most likely comes to our mind is the definition of free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. The grace of salvation. We think of that. Yes, that's grace. But you know, the Scripture uses grace in another way also. It uses grace of God's power that enables us to deal with life's circumstances. And I think that's what he's talking about. You're fallen from grace. You've fallen from it. You fall from the grace, you stop trusting Christ, you start trusting yourselves to live the Christian life. And when we operate in the flesh, we've fallen from the principle of grace. Because, listen, it's God's grace that enables us to do everything. Become a Christian and live the Christian life. God doesn't save you by grace and say, okay, you work it out now. It's all of grace, the Christian life from beginning to end. So there are people who are falling from grace, and Paul is warning about this. So you have to build yourself up so this doesn't happen. Notice what he told the Corinthians in 11. He says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed, you are bearing with me. For I'm jealous with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid... That is, the the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So he's worried about them being led astray. For if one comes and preaches another Yeshua, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which we have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. 
So Paul's concern is that having begun on the ground of the solid thing of the truth of the gospel, they begin to wander away. And not of their own, but they're kind of being led astray by deceivers here. So these apostates are leading others astray because people are young and they don't know the doctrine. So they're hearing these things. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's follow that. Paul told the Thessalonians, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. You can't hold fast to what's good until you examine first and find out what's good. And the only way you're going to know what's good is if you're spending time in the Word of God. Jude tells us if we're going to be protected in a time of apostasy from the subtleties of deceivers that are all around us, we're going to have to be building ourselves up on our most holy faith. And essentially he's saying what Paul is saying. We have to guard ourselves against deception. And here Paul says to do that, you have to examine everything carefully. You can't be gullible. You can't accept everything. And that's one of the main things today is tolerance. Whatever anybody believes, we just have to tolerate them. We have to put up with that. That's ridiculous. We're called to be discerning. Now, this basically comes down, people, to studying the Word of God. As you study it, you're going to learn what it has to say. Look at Acts 20. We've gone over this passage before, dealing with Jude. But he says, I, Paul says, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's called the elders together, and he's talking. He said, I know that after my departure... And this is kind of a sad thing to tell people. You know, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, among the elders, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. So he says, these, these false teachers, these apostates are going to come right from out of the elders. He says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I didn't cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Paul had most likely led these men to Christ and discipled them for three years. And now he's saying, I'm leaving you. You can just imagine how they must have felt. You know, Paul's leaving. What are we going to do? And Paul says, I commend you to God. He says, don't worry, God can take care of you. And then he says this, I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. I commend you to God and to God's Word because the Word will build you up. See, the Bible is alive. It's powerful to address the deepest need of your soul and change your life for the better. It has the power to save the sinner, to sanctify the saint, to soothe the sufferer, to satisfy the scholar. People, I don't care how long you study this. It just keeps opening up more and more and more. You're not going to get to the point where I did so much I don't need to do anymore. No. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And according to Hebrews 11, what is it that pleases God? It's faith. And where does faith come from? It comes from hearing the word of God. This implies that the Bible will transform your life by strengthening your faith. It is the word that builds you up. And so if you're going to build yourself up, you got to do so by means of of the Word of God. Now, I'm not talking about a casual reading of the Word here and there once in a while or listen to what somebody else says. I'm talking about digging into the Scriptures to perceive the deep things of God. And so the New Testament calls us repeatedly to this discipline, to the study of the Word of God. We are called to be Bereans. We've said that over and over. Acts chapter 17. It says, Brethren, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night to Berea. This is a city. They're going to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. That's the first place they went. That's where people were interested in spiritual things. That's where they teach. 
Now these were more noble-minded, not more noble-minded, talking about the Bereans, than those of Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So Luke tells us that these Jews of Berea were examining the scriptures. They weren't buying everything Paul said. They were looking to find out for themselves. The word examining here, anacrino, it means to investigate. The words used in the New Testament for judicial investigations. Now, the scriptures which the Bereans were investigating so diligently were the Hebrew scriptures. It was the Tanakh. They didn't have a New Testament yet. So Paul's preaching about Yeshua had to harmonize with the old covenant prophets and the old covenant promises. The Bereans wanted to make sure that what Paul was preaching was indeed the truth of God's word. So they examined it. That's the only way they're going to know. And we all need to be following the example of the Bereans and searching the Scriptures. When you hear a teaching, you shouldn't reject it and you shouldn't accept it. You should study it to find out whether it lines up with Scripture. Now think about this. The Bereans were taught by the most famous apostle, the church's greatest theologian of all time. The human author of at least 13 New Testament books. You know, they may have heard of Paul casting the demons out of the girl. They may have heard about Paul getting locked up in prison and the prison just crumbling apart and the guys getting out. They may have heard all these things. And they realized this is a superstar. I mean, this is, this is somebody important. But you know what? They wouldn't accept Paul's word at face value. They wanted to know if these things were in the Bible. And when they heard Paul teach, their, their reaction wasn't, this guy's lost his mind. It wasn't, this is a heretical doctrine, a suffering Messiah. We cannot believe that. Instead, they wanted to know if these things were so, so they took it to the Scriptures and they dug to figure out if this lines up with what he said. And you got to notice here that the Bereans' response to this strange teaching wasn't, was to examine the Scripture. It wasn't to ask the rabbi, hey, rabbi, what do you think? You know, I've talked to so many people about preterism, and without exception, they're like, yeah, that makes so much sense. What's the first thing they do? You go back, talk to their preacher. Then it's like, then they don't want to talk to you anymore. No, my preacher said no. My preacher said that's wrong. You know, the Bereans didn't go ask their rabbi. They didn't discuss it with a friend who was an expert on the Messiah. All right. They went to the Bible, which is the only inspired document there is. They searched the scriptures. They looked through the Tanakh to find whether these things were so. They see whether it lined up with the promises and the types that were in the Scripture. Whether the Bible did talk about a suffering Messiah who would come from Nazareth. Now, we don't know if a man's teaching is correct just because he's on the radio. Because it's on television or on the internet. Hopefully you understand that. People say, well, it's on the internet, it must be true. Well, that's far from truth, okay? Anybody with a connection can put something on the internet, alright? And the same thing with television, you know? Probably the most, the more they're out there, the more you've got to be careful, alright? And it doesn't even matter how many doctorates someone has behind their name. We've got to make sure what they're saying lines up with Scripture. And they can line up in some points and then be way off in someplace else. So we got to be careful about that. we got to examine everything they say. It's the Scripture, and the Scripture alone is the final judge on all teaching. This is a principle taught by the Reformers as sola scriptura, the Scripture alone. This is the idea that the Scripture is the only authority for sinful man in seeking the truth about God. It's the foundation. Scripture, sola scriptura is the foundation 
to Christianity. In the words of the reformer Martin Luther, the doctrine of sola scriptura means, what is asserted without the scripture or proven revelation may be held as an opinion, but need not be believed. If it's not backed up, people, you don't got to buy into that, okay? I don't care who says it. You know, one of the major differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism pertains to the view of the scripture. See, the Roman Catholic Church has believed and taught for centuries that the, only the Pope or other scriptural specialists can reliably interpret the Bible. What a great system, you know? You are too dumb to read this for yourself. I'll tell you what it means. So I can tell you anything I want. And you can't check it because you're not allowed to read this book, okay? For example, Martin Luther was trained as a Catholic priest. But he'd never seen a complete copy of the Bible until he earned a doctorate and was teaching at the University of Wittenberg. When he discovered a copy of the whole Bible in the university library, he was enthralled and he declared, if I could have a Bible for my own, I would desire no other earthly treasure. Because he couldn't get his hands on it. People didn't have it. He finally found one. And then he started reading it and he said, wow, this doesn't line up with the Catholic Church at all. See, that's why they didn't want people reading it, because it was dangerous to their view. The Bible in early Catholicism was in Latin, a language that the common people couldn't even read. So even if they got a copy, it didn't do them much good. Well, Luther brought down on his head the wrath of the powerful and political motivated church when he translated the Bible into German, so the people could actually read it. And some men, such as John Wycliffe, who wanted the Bible in the language of his own people, whether it be German, English, Dutch, or French. They had to pay with their lives for translating and attempting to translate the Word of God. It's, you know, this is the Bible, yeah, but we don't want anybody having it. Because when you have it, you figure out for yourself. The sad thing today is they've tricked us the opposite way. Everybody's got one and no one reads it. It's really sad, people. Because people can say anything they want and the average church person doesn't read it so they don't know if they're lining up with the Word of God or not and they really don't care. They just trust what they hear. And the Catholic Church would still prefer their people to allow the Pope and his official representatives to be the only ones that interpret the Bible. And Roman Catholicism cannot survive the test of Scripture. The Bereans were characterized by a great confidence in the Word of God as God's authoritative source of revelation and the standard by which everything is judged. Now sadly in our day, not many believers have the Berean spirit. They just don't. George Gallup contends that fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians would be called deeply committed. My wife showed me a video on Facebook recently of a lady who claims to be a Christian. You know, she's pretty vocal actually about her Christianity, but they were getting married and she'd been living with this guy for a couple years and they got married and in her vows, she says, it's been totally worth living in sin with you for two years. In her vows! That's Christianity today. Yep, we've been living in sin. No, it's sin. Who cares? I love Jesus, she'd say. Like, I hear that so often. People, I love the Lord. I say, if you love me, keep my commandments. How do we not, how do we, you know, love is not a feeling. It's not what you feel about something. But I mean, to just openly just say, you know, in your wedding vows, yeah, it's been worth living in sin. Love Jesus. Gallup says the majority that profess Christianity don't know basic teachings. <laughs> that's for sure. 
and don't act differently because of their Christian experience. And I agree with that. I've run into so many people who say they're Christians. You'd never know it. You know? Because most Christians today don't know their Bibles. They don't examine it daily, weekly, monthly. They don't even look at it. All right? They hear things taught and they believe them without ever searching the Scripture. Believers, if we're going to know the God of the Bible, we've got to read the Bible. We have to spend time in it to learn about our God. If we're going to know Him, it comes from the Bible. We're going to make Him known. It comes from knowing who He is first from the Scriptures. We don't believe everything we hear. We have to examine the Scriptures. People, knowing the truth saves us from error. And that's very important. I want to read to you something from Chris McCann of eBible Fellowship. eBible Fellowship is a big website, teaching website. A lot of stuff on there. I've read several of his things. He's got some good stuff to say. All right? But I read this last week, and I was kind of taken aback, kind of angry, kind of upset. But it says this. Upon saving the last one of his elect, God ended the possibility of all salvation for the unsaved people of the world by shutting the door of heaven on May 21st, 2011. Does that date ring a bell to anybody? Remember that preacher was out preaching? What was that guy's name? I can't remember. I think I see his face now and I can't. He just died recently. He was just, this was the end of the world. Huh? Yeah, camping. This, this is the end of the world. Okay, May 21st, 2011. So he, this guy is saying the door of salvation closed that day. From that point forward, not one person anywhere in the world has become saved. Once God shut the door of heaven, and he had put this in quotes, a spiritual door that no man could see while it was open, nor they could see once it was shut. Well, thanks for adding that for us, okay? Because we are total morons. Each person's spiritual condition was permanently fixed and established. The following scriptures have taken effect. And here's his spoof text, okay? He uses Revelation 22. And he said unto me, Seal the sayings of the prophecy of this book. The time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. See, if you're unsaved, you just stay unsaved. All right? He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. So that's a spoof text. That has nothing to do with this, all right? After quoting the scripture, he goes on to say, Never again will a sinner be taken out of a life of spiritual darkness and be translated into God's kingdom of light. After thousands of years of sending forth the gospel into the world to find and save lost sinners, God's plan was now finally completed. The time of judgment now came upon the world, and the judgment was that there would be no more salvation for mankind. Throughout the day of judgment, which is a prolonged period of time, beginning on May 21st, 2011, and in all likelihood, concluding 1,600 days later on October 7th, 2015. Uh, a couple of weeks ago? The world ended a couple of weeks ago. Did you know that? The unsaved will remain unsaved. The saved will remain saved. No one's spiritual condition can be altered. Now, I found a series of five messages on this website, once I started investigating this, entitled, Why October 7th, 2015 is the likely end of the world. These messages were done in March of April this year. And the end of one of the last messages says this. We can say this absolutely when we say there is a strong likelihood that it will be the end. And this means that perhaps we are wrong and it will not be the end of the world. As you get closer, these guys always start skimping a little bit, you know. 
Some things in an abs- we can say some things in an absolute way in regard to October 7th. Alright, here's some positive things he knows about it. It is absolutely the 10,000th day since judgment since May 21st, 1988. Okay, yeah, so I, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Alright. It is absolutely the 1600th day or 40th 40 since May 21st, 2011. It is absolutely the last day of the harvest in 2015. It is absolutely the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles in 2015. All these things are coming together to fall on that particular day. It is the 10,000th day, the 16th day, the final day of the harvest, the final day of tabernacles. It will be the last of the world's... Ex- will this be the last day of the world's existence? No. no. He's wrong. All right. The last message I could find posted on the site was from October 6th. He does several weekly things, but nothing, it hadn't been updated since the 6th, because maybe he got taken. I don't know, maybe, I don't know what happened, but, you know, I wanted to check the website this morning, I just didn't have time. Now listen to this. Because of apostates like this, we need to know the Word of God. Imagine what this kind of teaching would do to a young believer who is praying for his family, his loved ones, his friends to come to Christ, and he reads this and he's like, they can't come to Christ. There's no possible way for them to come to Christ. And he's just discouraged and he's hurting. I don't even need to share their gospel anymore. But imagine this. Imagine you came to Christ in June of 2011. And you're reading this. And I, I can't be a Christian. According to this man, the door was shut. I missed it by a month. So I'm not even a Christian. How's that? What does that do to your faith? This could devastate believers who are not taught in the Word of God. I mean, he uses scriptures all over. If you know anything about the Bible, you know it's like you're confused of what he's trying to even say because it's, you know, how he pulls these dates out is amazing, you know. But this is devastating to people. And this is a, a website that has a big presence out there. And I read this and I'm thinking, I've read some of this guy's stuff. I can't believe this. Since May 21st, no one ever been saved. That was it. That was done. So what, there's no point in preaching the gospel anymore. There's no point in much anything. But I guess the world ended, so I don't, I don't know what we're doing here. You know, This is why we have to know the Word of God. To protect ourselves from people like this. Because without understanding, you know, how many people have got sucked into this end time nonsense lately? This has been the year of end time nonsense. Everything's happening, you know? I mean, you got the Shemitah and the year of the Shemitah and it's all, everything's going to collapse and you got Hagee out there, the blood moons and, you know, all the, and one guy after another and Christians are like, oh, they're on the edge of their seat waiting for the next thing to happen. We need to get t-shirts made up. I survived all these end times, you know, and put all the dates on there. You know, 20 different dates that we, you know, we're still around, people. How many end times do we make it through? Man, knowing the Scripture is so comforting when you deal with this kind of stuff, you know? Because you're just like, Because it can be scary. Because I, I remember when I read Wisenot's book for the first time, I, it scared me. I was like, oh my word, i got to get ready. We're getting raptured this month, next month, you know? And next month came and went, and I'm like looking around like, oh, I guess something. That, and then he, he corrected the book, and he said I was a year off. I'm like, no, i got a whole nother year, you know? <laughs> Yeah. All right. Believers, do you understand this? It takes 72 hours at a normal reading speed to read through the Bible cover to cover. 72 hours. 
And I hear people say, I just can't read through the Bible. It's just too much. I got, I'm too busy. I got too many things to do. Listen, God has given you 8,760 hours. If you use 72 of them for him, you still have 8,688 hours left to do what you want. 72 hours, you know, it just sounds like nothing in that time frame. But we can't do it. So many people, I just can't seem to fit it in there. Something is wrong with your priorities. If you don't have time to spend with the God you claim to love, something is wrong somewhere. Spurgeon said this, Edification is a grand defense against the assaults of skeptics and heretics. These prey upon the ignorant and unestablished, but fail to overthrow those who are rooted and grounded in the truth. That's so true. If you know what you're talking about, you stand your ground. You ever gotten a discussion with someone and, you know, they're talking about something technical, whatever, and you're like lost, and you're like, well, whatever you say. But if you know what they're talking about and you know they're wrong, then you say, well, wait, let me tell you a few things. You can stand your ground because you understand what it's about. When you know the Bible, people, you could stand against all these heresies, all these end-time claimers. Well, the end of verse 20, he gives us a second faith builder. He says, praying in the Holy Spirit. This is the only occurrence of that exact phrase in the Scripture. Weiss explains that in the Holy Spirit is a locative of sphere. That is, all true prayer is exercised in the sphere of the Holy Spirit, motivated and empowered by Him. So what is prayer? Well, bottom line is, prayer is going to God for things. It's talking to God. It's asking Him for things. Now, it's more than just asking Him. We come with confession. We come with thanksgiving. We come with praise. And I really believe, biblically, you should start with praise and then the requests come after, because if you spend a lot of time praising, you're like, I got nothing to ask for. I didn't realize how good I had it, you know, when you're done praising. But prayer is asking God for things. And you know what? It's God's will that we do that. It's not like he's, oh, those kids are asking for stuff again. They're always asking for something. Look at Proverbs 15.8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Can you imagine that? You can bring delight to the Lord by prayer. He delights in our prayer. He loves to be asked for things. Why does Yahweh delight in our prayers? Why would He do that? I don't particularly like it when my kids are always asking for stuff. Like, will you quit? But He delights in it. Because it's an opportunity to express our devotion to Yahweh and our dependence upon Him. It's an act of dedicating ourselves saying, Yahweh, I need you. See, the biggest reason we don't pray is that we don't feel a dependence upon God. We think we can handle it. It's acting apart from grace. We think we can do it ourselves. You know, ever since Adam and Eve, man has vastly overestimated his own ability. So we think, I don't need prayer. This is something I can do on my own. That's such a wrong attitude. Everything we do, should be, we should realize, I can't do this alone. Anything, the smallest things, because then you're trusting him. Our biggest problem is admitting that we need His help. we got to be honest. I admit I'm inadequate. I admit I'm helpless. I need your help in this situation. Lord, direct me. Give me wisdom. Because as long as you think you're self-sufficient, prayer really can't have any meaning to you. You think you've got it all together. But prayer is an act of dependence. Saying, Yahweh, I admit I have a need. I need your help in my life. It's a declaration of dependence upon Him. It's our way of saying to Elohim, I need your help. I can't do this myself. And Yahweh is glorified 
and man's dependence. This means that while I'm working on building up myself in my most holy faith, I'm doing it in dependence upon Him. See, we are responsible to build ourselves up, but we're responsible to do it as we're trusting in Him the whole time. I'm dependent upon Him to teach me as I study. Now, what does He mean praying in the Holy Spirit? Wow, there's some people who jump to this and they say, Ah, see, speaking in tongues, that's in the Bible. That's what it means, praying in the Spirit. It doesn't mean that at all, okay? And I never, you know, people say, it's a private prayer language. If you pray in tongues, the devil doesn't understand what you're saying. And you can get right to God without the devil messing up. I got news for you. I can think it in my head and God hears it. So I don't need to say anything, okay? And the devil's not omniscient, omnipresent, never was at all. You know, so it's no, it's not that at all. Doesn't have anything to do with that. If you were to examine every prayer prayed in the Bible, and if you were to study every passage in the Bible which taught about prayer, you'd not find one passage anywhere, anytime, that even suggests that prayer should be unintelligible. I was a charismatic, I was a tongue speaker. I went to sea with the Navy, and when I was out there, I decided I'm going to study the history of the church while I'm out there and learn something about the history of the church. So I studied the history of the church, and one thing I found no tongues. No tongues. It ended in the New Testament and then it showed up at 1801 on Zuzu Street in California. Or 19-something in, in California. And I'm like, what's going on all that time? And all of a sudden it's back. And I realized, that, well, the, it's not biblical. But we have to be dependent upon the Lord in everything. And that's what prayer is. It is dependence upon Him. Look at Matthew 6, 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard by their many words. Now, what's interesting here, meaningless repetition is the word batalageo, which comes from the verb legao, which means to speak, and the prefix bata. Bata is a figure of speech that in English we call an onomatopoeia. All right, it's a word that sounds like what it is, like buzz, zip, zing. Yeshua is literally saying, when you pray, don't say bata, 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 bata. All right, it sounds like gibberish. It sounds like tongues. It sounds like what the pagans do. Don't do that. You know, he doesn't hear you. All the words you say, that's not what it's about. Praying in the Spirit is to pray in dependence upon the Spirit in accordance with the Word of God. And the Spirit will never lead us to pray contrary to the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. That's why if we know the Word, we can even pray better. To pray in the Spirit is to pray according to the revealed Word of God. We're praying not that our will be done, but that His will would be done. Matthew 26, 39. And He went a little beyond them and fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You know, when we pray for Yahweh's will, we're praying in the Spirit. Our prayer should be like this. We know that your will is perfect. We know that you have given us this situation. We know that you have given us this problem. You have presented this difficulty before us. You are the one who has brought about our physical ailment or these developments that have cost us financially. You are the one, Father, who has brought this person into our life that is so much a thorn in the flesh to us. You are the one who is bringing this situation, has allowed these things to occur. So I pray, not my will, but thine be done. It's praying in the Spirit. 
So many times what we pray is totally against the will of God. And we're asking God to do something against His will. When I was a phone counselor at CBN, I had a lady call me and said, would you please pray for me? I said, sure, man. What are we praying for? She goes, my boyfriend left me and went back to his wife. Would you pray that he would come back to me? I said, are you crazy? <laughs> so I took her through the scriptures and she hung up on me. I'm like, how am I going to pray that the guy, you know, it just, but that, you know, we want what we want. We don't care what God wants. We just want him to do what we want him to. And praying in the spirit is praying accordance with his will. So Jude says, but you, beloved, build yourselves up. You can only do this through the word of God. On your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So here he's giving us the antidote for apostasy. We've got to be building our spirit up. And we can only do this as we spend time in the word of God. We've got to be familiar with it. And we must do this independence of the Spirit of God. So as we pray, we pray as David prayed, open my eyes that I behold wonderful things from your law. We pray that He would open us to the truth that's in the Word of God. And only having a solid grasp on the Word of God will keep us from being swept away by every wind of doctrine that's coming down the pipe right now. So it's by spending time in the Word of God. And hopefully people... As we learn Him, as we know Him from the Scriptures, our responsibility is to make Him known. We have to talk to others. We've got to encourage others to get in the Word. We've got to help them get back to the truth of the Word of God. The church has departed from this, people. It's left the truth. It's not interested in the truth anymore because that doesn't really pay the bills. All right? So they're just doing whatever is the latest thing to do that attracts a crowd, that gets people, that makes people happy so they keep coming back and keep tithing. We've got to get back to the truth of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would protect us, Father. You would give us the heart of the Bereans. We would take what we hear back to the Word of God and examine it, see if it lines up. We'd hold people accountable who are teaching the Word of God, Lord. Thank You, Father, for giving us the Word. I thank You that each and every one of us has it at our disposal. We can search, we can study, we can dig. Give us a heart to do that, Father. Amen.